0: Yale Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to ISM Fellows in Conversation, a podcast from the Yale Institute of Sacred Music. The episodes in this series present a discussion between a current ISM student and a visiting researcher in the ISM Fellows program. Each year, the Institute hosts a cohort of fellows who are in residence for one year to pursue interdisciplinary projects and teach at Yale. The following conversation focuses on the diverse research, teaching, and creative work of a current ISM fellow. Hi, my name is Ben Bond. I am a second year Master's of Divinity student here at Yale University and member of the Institute of Sacred Music. And I'm really excited to get to talk to Dr. Dirksen today. Welcome.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you so much for inviting me, Ben. And I'm really delighted to be in your presence today.
1: Likewise. Um, yeah, so I guess we could get started out by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, um, where are you from? Where do you teach kind of full time? Um, what is your area of expertise and, uh, what brought you to the ISM and what's the project uh, you're working on here?
0: Right. Well, thank you so much. Um, I am Dr. Rebecca Dirksen. I am an associate professor at Indiana University, where I'm on the faculty in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology. Um, I uh, teach a really broad range of courses um, as an ethnomusicologist, um, including graduate seminars on applied ethnomusicology, um, film as ethnography, ecomusicology, and um, also a lot of undergraduate courses as well, um, including those on carnival, um, music and development and music and disaster, um, Caribbean music, sacred ecologies and the environment, um, which relates to uh, the latter relates to my, um, my project here at the ISM. So as an ethnomusicologist, in fact, I have many research interests and I work in fact across genres. So everything from Haitian classical music or art music to rap creole to voodoo and well beyond. Um, And uh, really my research concerns um, kind of the big picture questions, these grand challenges. So cultural approaches to development crisis and disaster, um, sustainability, diverse environmentalisms, eco musicology, um, and I try to approach all of these um, big picture questions from a perspective of applied, engaged, or activist scholarship, which I write on as well. Um, So while I'm somebody who um, really enjoys these details and complexities um, within each of these uh, genre concerns or um, uh, theoretical concerns, I'm really conceptually driven by these these bigger picture grand challenges. Um, One particular overarching area of interest is um, Uh, something called music which is socially or politically engaged music, for example. Um, And again, this is something that applies across um, all different genres. Um, I very recently published a book on Carnival in Haiti um, titled After the Dance, the Drums are Heavy, Carnival, Politics, and Musical Engagements in Haiti, which came out in 2020 with Oxford. And that really touches on this socially and politically engaged music and how um, spaces of Carnival Um, often become um, political spaces and how um, political uh, spaces often um, become uh, equally spaces of carnival. And I look at kind of the, um, in great detail, both the historical and contemporary concerns um, surrounding this performative um, practice. Um, And so this year, I'm working to kind of extend this work on music engage, this socially and politically engaged music, but really through the lens of um, sacred ecologies and the environment. So I've always been long um, interested in environmental matters, climate change, um, the direct impacts on um, specific communities, especially, um, for example, um, uh, Haiti in particular, which has um, found itself at the top of um, the list for countries that are the most value, the most vulnerable in the world to. Um, the effects of uh, climate change. Um, and so we need to be very, very attentive to how um, uh, you know, climate change and environmental degradation um, and use of resources around the world you know impacts different um, communities, different nations, different populations um, in very unequal ways. Um, so this particular book is really focusing on um, climate change activism and environmental justice with regard to Haiti. Um, but through a lens of um, the sacred. Um, so I'm looking at Vodou as being a really essential um, metaphysical practice of um, understanding more about um, relations um, between uh, human and non-human or beyond human um, and how, how people um, facing um, centuries of colonial and neocolonial Uh, intervention and um, violence uh, can find ways to move through uh, this universe. So Vodou, I think, has a long established um, ancient practice of looking at um, the universe in a a more encompassing way than um, many of us have been geared to think through a uh, capitalist um, worldview. So that's effectively what I'm looking at while I'm here at the Institute of Sacred Music, this project on voodoo as sacred ecology and um, uh, the environment and environmental justice.
1: Wow, that is just so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I I would love to do that in some capacity in my life. Um yeah, I I think that leads to my second question um for you is I think what's really fascinating about your work is how um diverse and multivalent it is and its approach to, you know, um what you're trying to explore and I mean, you know, a lot of scholars would approach something with just the the environmental perspective um and like what about you know sociologically is this religious movement of voodoo doing to do um environmental activism but what you're doing is something that's so much broader and much more interdisciplinary um and yeah i'm curious kind of what um brought you to this interdisciplinary perspective that's really at the core of what the ISM is is focused on, um, and and how how have you been able to um, implement that in your work more broadly? How, how has that been a um, choice that's been made to be more broad in your uh, approach than to be really narrow, which is often what um, academic work tends to be?
0: Right. That I think that's a really um, excellent question, and I think some of that comes down to, um, you know, just my own ways of moving through the world and the way my brain works. Um, you know, instinctively, I'm drawn to um, many, many, many different interests. Um, you know, so this um, commitment to interdisciplinary interdisciplinarity, I think, is um, kind of core to who. I am, you know, I tend to see all of those, those connections. My brain doesn't remotely work in a linear way. Um, And so, you know, I work with that and I'm really interested then in exploring, you know, kind of these winding corridors of connection. Um, And so I might find, for example, on any given day that, you know, I might be um, reading on, I don't know, experimental practices or ethical reimaginings of ethnography within anthropology, which then might suddenly um, push me to read something on degrowth economics or environmental science or forestry. And then I'll um, somehow be propelled um, toward Black and Indigenous ecologies, which then pretty quickly leads me back to questions of the sacred. Um, and so uh you know, knowing that this is how, um, you know, my intellectual um, inner life works, I kind of capitalize on that and um, uh, find that it resonates, in fact, quite well with um, Caribbean intellectual practices. Um, And, you know, I've, I've written about this and spoken well, yeah, I've I've spoken about this um, process a little bit before, kind of likening it to um, spiralism, which is uh, an important Caribbean or Haitian um, literary movement um, that I think critically to me is an explicit rejection of that linearity that is supposedly so characteristic of so much um, within academia. You know, these academic expectations that we have with regard to writing, publishing, teaching, etc. So, um, rather than um you know seeing my ability to jump between many different diverse um uh sectors and interests and um disciplines and areas of study, you know, I I I really find this energizing and um uh you know for myself conceptualize of this as more of like a spiralist um praxis. Um, as a scholar and really enjoy the process. And, you know, if I don't know where I'm going to end up at the end of the day, um, um, based on where I start, you know, I just enjoy that journey as being part of how I think. And um, I think that that yields um, this, this type of framing of any really critical project. You know, when we're dealing with environmental justice, for example, how do we see the Um, The deeper connections that draw us all into this project, regardless of um, race, gender, nationality, ability, um, you know, religion, um, any of these perspectives, I think, you know, you can see that they're all kind of uh, integrally related um, in one way or another. So I, I try to really celebrate that rather than see that as a limitation.
1: Absolutely, and the idea that interdisciplinarity can be perceived as a limitation in the Western, like academic context, baffles me. Frankly, <laughs> like, if anything, it should be a broadening. It's uh, the limitation comes from the antithesis to that, and yeah, I would. Re- that's I think one of the beautiful things about being here at the Insta- Institute of Sacred Music is that commitment. Um, within the academy towards that interdisciplinarity that is unique um, that I really value and cherish and I'm I'm sure probably was a draw for you as a scholar outside of Yale to be like, I want to be a part of this. Um, Yeah, I was was curious kind of like on um, what, you know, a lot of times scholarship is informed by our social location, positionality in, in the world and um, I'm curious kind of what got you interested in um, Haitian voodoo and um, what was the, the process of kind of uncovering this, the, the um, environmental aspects of, of the music tradition uh, for you um, and, and kind of what has been your trajectory to coming to this Subject matter that's fairly niche. Um, I'm one of the few people that could probably have a more extensive conversation about uh, the intricacies of the tradition. So, and I, I'm not even um, f- formally, you know, trained in um, Haitian the Haitian tradition. But yeah, I'm curious what what has led to this um, passion of yours and and exploring all of this.
0: Right. Um, again, another excellent question, and um, one that will probably lead to kind of an extensive, <laughs> um, uh, an extensive response. Um, so I'll try to, to um, focus this a little bit, but I, I can say that um, I've been involved in one way or another with um, Haitian music and culture for nearly two decades now. So there's a substantial amount of time. Um, dedicated to learning more about Haitian culture, more generally, well beyond voodoo. Um, I've spent more of my adult life living in the country of Haiti than I have anywhere else. Um, and wow. so I have a particular um, connection, I think, uh, in terms of family, in terms of um, friends, colleagues, um, just this sense of feeling Haiti as being Um, home to me as well as wherever else I am um, currently living. And so I think that there's already kind of this, this understanding that I kind of have a foot in, in two different countries at the moment. And um, that's been part of my, um, I think that's, that's contributed to my, um, my values, my, um, my ethical stance on some of what it is that I do. And also it's given me the ability to um, be able to traverse into spaces that are um, maybe a little bit more protected that are maybe, and for very good reason, that are maybe a little bit more, um, um, the, those spaces that have been perpetually um, kind of denigrated in ways that are um, uh, very disheartening. Um, At best, and um, uh, violent at worst, Um, and so my initial introduction to vodou came explicitly through invitations from um, people that I know, Um, and prior to first attending, um, you know, vodou gathering. Um, I had already begun to learn a little bit about it, not only through um, literature, um, but also through, in fact, Haitian classical music, um, which is a connection that many people might not think about. But I um, I started effectively um, volunteering at summer music camps in Haiti um, shortly after I graduated from undergrad. Um, and that I think is also a really interesting story. So I did a degree in piano performance at a music conservatory, um, Lawrence University, which is also a liberal arts school, and so had this this opportunity to really enjoy um, uh, studying classical music in this um, very intensive, um, energizing environment. And um, when I first went to Haiti, this was 2003, it was just a few weeks after I had graduated with this degree in piano performance. Um, and I stepped into this space where effectively the summer music camps were geared around you know, the, the typical um, high school um, repertoire that we would see in, in high school rep, uh, orchestras and bands you know, in, in North America. Right. So we're dealing with a very canonical um, orientation to performance and learning. And um, at the same time, there were also some some efforts to um, bring in Haitian classical um, composers um, to that practice as well. And, you know, as a result of that first um, opportunity to work at the summer music camp as a band director, percussion instructor and uh, collaborative pianist, um, I really realized that there were two points of friction for me. First of all, I was in Haiti. I was teaching this um, this canonical classical um, material um, that I was already questioning as a performer myself. Um, and I was wondering, well, why is it that I'm here in Haiti when I'm learning that Haitian Um, There is a whole um, well-developed repertoire of Haitian music. Why aren't we doing even more with um, Haitian composers in this setting? Um, How can we help um, Haitian students um, see the value in creativity around them? And how can we help them to grow as um, musicians, but also as people? So I had that point of friction that I was really wrestling with, and you know that's that that's a larger conversation that involves all sorts of people that have continued um, forward to to um, uh, continue to enhance the opportunities for um, local composition and um, uh, education and appreciation of um, Haitian uh, music. But also, there was a, a moment where. Um, I stepped out of the, the confines of the camp. Now the camp was held in um, effectively a, a hospital complex um, at the time um, in um, a town called Lagon. And this also happens to be um, a prominent site for Rara, which is a, uh, basically like a street-based um, parading tradition. Now, that's an extremely gross gloss of what rara actually is because it's like everything, like voodoo, like um, everything, you know, that's, that's as superficial as we can get. But effectively, it's a, um, like a band tradition, a foot band tradition where people come out into the streets and are playing um, various instruments um, like aerophones, percussion, um, and uh, it tends to be associated with uh, the carnivalesque season. Um, And so anyway, Leogon, that town where I had first entered into this space, um, was also kind of a heart um, for, or a seat of activity for Rara. And during the summer camp, when I stepped out, there was an occasion when all of a sudden a Rara band just burst out of nowhere. It was my first encounter with Rara, it's a different genre, I'd never heard of it before. And it, it got me thinking, well, how is it that I've just done a conservatory degree in music performance and I don't know anything about music? You know, of, of course, I had a really great training, um, which I'm immensely grateful for. I'm glad that I went through that degree. And yet it was kind of a moment where I was increasingly recognizing the, the limitations um, that had been set um, with regard to um, understanding music at a professional level, right? So um, from that point, I think I've gotten quite a far astray of what your original question was, but it kind of gives you um, uh, a little bit more background in terms of how I um, initially got uh, entered into this space. Um, long story short, I, I um, kept going back each summer to work at these summer music camps, and there were several of them. Um, and uh, that um, then led into a master's degree where I did some ethnographic research for a number of months um, in Haiti, um, which then led into my PhD, which um, in the discipline of ethnomusicology typically involves um, an extended period of um, on the ground uh, research and kind of um, being in the space in community and um, getting to experience things um, that are of importance um, or that are just part of the daily life of um, people um, in this um, place where one has descended to, or one has decided to um, come and be. So um, it was kind of a gradual progression, and then as things evolved through my uh, PhD. Um, I came to the decision that, um, the, I mean, there are all sorts of, uh, hefty questions about the ethics of ethnography, right. And what the implications are, um, for, especially a white American scholar, um, to come into a space like Haiti, um, and, uh, try to, um, establish themselves as, you know, a scholar of that area. Um, in wrestling with those complicated um, frictions myself, with regard to race, nationality, um, you know, all sorts of privilege-based questions, um, I came to the decision that, in fact, you know, I needed to ensure that my um, that my participation was an ongoing, lifelong commitment, and so that then evolved into being able to have, um, as I said previously, that foot in two countries, um, sort of. Um, Uh, perspective. And so then I've just been going back and forth between um, whether it's been in in Boston or whether it's been in Bloomington or now here in New Haven, I've been, um, you know, going back and forth um, as often as I can. Now, um, you know, with COVID and with the current political uh, situation in Haiti, that's been much, much more difficult um, over the last year. But my general commitment is, you know, this, this flow between spaces. So rather than kind of rigidly saying, oh, this is where I reside, I prefer to think of it as, you know, being within these spaces of flow together with people that I have come to care a lot about.
1: Yeah, this is just absolutely, um, and enriching. And, um, in terms of, you know, coming to the place where you're understanding, uh, there's all this music that I don't know. Um, I'm I'm really interested in learning about this tradition. Um, I'm curious, kind of, what what pushed you beyond just the music, and in, in terms of the environmental um, understanding of what Haiti contributes to the world um, and its perspective towards ecological well-being and welfare, um, and kind of what what brought that out for you in your scholarship. I'm curious about.
0: Yeah, that's also a really great and helpful question. So, um, in fact, my um, the way I stepped into um, environmentalism in a formal academic setting was really in, first of all, my ethnographic experiences in um, living in the country both before and after um, the 2010 earthquake. And at that time, um, you know, I think many of us can remember um, Kind of the, the really dramatic images that we were seeing in the in the media with um, all of the buildings um, kind of toppled into rubble and um, I one of my extended periods of fieldwork happened to correspond with this um, immediate post quake um, experience and I had immediately before the earthquake I had been there and immediately after the earthquake I I was there. And so um, this gave me um, the opportunity to be walking around in the country and particularly based around Port-au-Prince or the capital city where this was kind of the, um, the central point um, of the catastrophic um, uh, experience and really the, the focal point for all of these aid organizations that were coming in. So. I came in looking at um, disaster and development concerns, um, how these international organizations are uh, coming in and trying to um, kind of shape the the cultural and political environment in very particular ways and the impacts more broadly um, with regard to um, how, how those who had just survived this event were being uh, treated. Um, And at the same time, it meant walking through streets that were um, cluttered with all sorts of um, remnants, all sorts of uh, debris, all sorts of trash um, from the experience, but also from um, other significant infrastructural issues um, relating to um, the inability at that time and moving forward to manage, for example, sanitation and trash. So this was part of my experience, seeing this, witnessing this being, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of being centered, uh, or not centered, but kind of being right there in the middle of it and experiencing the intensity of it. And, um, so my first environmental, um, push was really to look at how people were responding to trash in multiple levels. So trash in terms of, um, the literal, um, rubbish that was being thrown in the streets and not being uh, collected. Um, and how people were trying to navigate living in these, um, circumstances and what that psychologically and physiologically and, um, physically was meaning for people. Um, you know, there were, Um, all sorts of songs at this time that were talking about trash. They were talking about, for example, um, there's a phrase in Creole that effectively says that your face is your passport. You know, so the way that you present is the way that you're able to um, move through the world. And I saw this as kind of this really important metaphor for um, the ways that people were literally experiencing the trash situation. So certain neighborhoods, you know, if they were um, not... Um, not being able to um, have trash collection on a regular um, basis. Well, they were those marginalized um, zones that were becoming um, points of frustration and demoralization for so many people. So they were being characterized according to um, the specific zone that they were living in versus, you know, these more elite uh, zones families with much more economic means were not seeing similar characterization. So, um, I was interested in looking at, you know, just even locally, how, um, some people were being treated, um, in, um, ways that were very, uh, degrading and, and difficult for their existence and others were being kind of exalted and appreciated. That was something that we saw play out on the international level as well, with regard to um, all of these developmentalist um, organizations, these NGOs that were flocking to the country. And so I was looking at kind of the parallels here between um, how they were approaching this and seeing ties with um, trash as Um, kind of a a trope or more than a trope that was being used. And so I I see that as something that kind of plays into this whole question of development and how we um, treat other people and how um, people become racialized and um, nationalized and um, discarded, which then kind of maps onto this broader um, conversation of Haitian history at large. Why do we think of Haiti as being um, this quote unquote poorest country in the Western hemisphere? Well, that's an intentional construction. So I was seeing kind of these different layers of um, intentional construction of trash um, for reasons that were, um, in my view, um, completely illegitimate and not respectful of actual histories and um, the actual value of of people. So um, that kind of got me into this whole conversation about the environments in very... In very, very broad terms, um, but also through very specific um, experiences of literally walking through trash on the streets. Um, And that then um, related um, to this other question about trees that I became very, very interested in. Um, In some of that same repertoire that talked about um, too much trash, um, there was also um, mention of deforestation. And we talk about deforestation a lot with regard to um, Haiti, um, as a nation where, you know, obviously plantation based um, colony um, that was one of the absolute most productive in this hemisphere um, and was enormously wealthy, you know, at the time of its peak uh, during the uh, 1700s. And uh, that really gets us into a history of looking at land management and, um, you know, what types of resources are being extracted in order to make other resources possible to extract. So, you know, plantation-based society based on, you know, needing to raise trees or forests, um, in order to produce, um, sugar and coffee crops. And then, um, when we move past the, uh, the revolution, um, the when Haiti became an independent nation, we see kind of a, a, a new iteration of management of land. And again, very complicated conversation, but with regard to trees and deforestation specifically, we move from that plantation-based model to um, not too long after uh, the uh, independence in 1804 to a um, century and a half of aggressive lumber exportation. And during that period, we see... Um, all of the, these um, highly valued hardwood trees, um, so for example, acaju, which is mahogany, or um, uh, these, these high quality um, woods that are used for building and furniture, they were all effectively um, uh, harvested in order to send overseas to North America and Europe. So you see a different form of extractionism emerging at this period. And those two movements combine, um, led to by the oh, 1930s, um, you know, near, um, you know, wiping out, you know, significantly wiping out of various species of these hardwood trees. Um, and so the common narrative, though, that we hear when it comes to deforestation in Haiti is, oh, is all those quote unquote, peasants, uh, or paysans, um, you know, those rural dwellers who are um, cutting down trees for charcoal. And so I was seeing, you know, yet another connection. Well, you know, we're not looking at this, this longer history to be able to understand, you know, this is part of a, a trajectory, um, and so when you are denigrating um, you know people who are effectively just trying to survive by blaming them for the bulk of deforestation in the country, well, you know we might have some um, we might have to work on our, our perspective um, because that is certainly not representative. It's certainly not accurate in terms of this this bigger picture concern. So um, I was concerned um, you know with trying to look at this broader, uh, system and the longer-term um, violence that was being enacted against um, contemporary uh, citizens who were um, using uh, trees for charcoal, um, while also kind of reconciling that against, um, you know, the, the beauty of trees um, within voodoo. So voodoo is a sacred practice, um, attributes um, various qualities and characteristics to um, you know all different species of trees, um, so you know they have healing properties. You know there are all sorts of songs in the um, vodou repertoire that describe um, using leaves from certain trees as healing aids, um, making teas, making tinctures, um, and so effectively this becomes like a an indigenous uh, uh, pharmacology or this this um, healing practice um, through intimately knowing the medicinal properties of each of these species. So um, in addition, uh, each uh, tree species um, is associated with various loa or uh, voodoo spirits um, that uh, kind of occupy the the space of the trees, or they're associated with the trees. Um, The trees become like repositories or like homes for uh, these spirits. And, um, so people were, um, who practice voodoo, um, have kind of this very close tie to trees as being essential. And then how, do, if, if sacred, um, conceptions of trees as being, um, essential to human life, um, are being, uh, taught through, um, prayer and practice and song, um, then how do we understand, um, how people were experiencing these extreme states of deforestation in the country. So um, that's something that has really drawn me in um, with regard to my own research. And I think it, it relates, I think you can see in that bigger picture to environmental justice um, with this slow violence that we like to talk about so much, um, that really extends back to um, you know that plantation, um, that colonial encounter and the genocidal um, uh, construction of um, Saint Domingue first and then Haiti as a nation, and then this continued refusal to view Haiti as being so central to um, contemporary history and um, really essential to making up this hemisphere. So, um, really, trash and trees, you know, when we talk about them that way, they sound a little bit simplified, but I think that they're very powerful indices for looking at these essential, uh, questions of, um, justice and, um, uh, reconciliation and dealing with this deeper, very, very complex history.
1: Wow. Yeah, that was fantastic. Um, that was really powerful. Dr. Dirksen, um, I, I resonate with that, the, the notion of kind of the, the colonial, um, capitalist notion of like making people disposable, um, kind of that that idea of not only the this the, the trash that is like present in the literal form, but the metaphorical like trash making of people and culture and space and environment um, it, it is absolutely so important and powerful and present and like a reality that I think is often miss understood or misconceived um and also the the point about um folks being seen as individually responsible for a larger problem that they had very little to actually contribute to um
0: and and, no way to get out of that you know so those who are using uh charcoal um, have absolutely no other access to electricity. And so how are you going to expect to eat? How are you going to expect to take care of basic daily functions if you have no access? So, yeah, it's it's that perpetual construction of um, people as though they are not people, people as though they are quote-unquote trash. And then we have to really do some critical um, reconstructive work, regenerative work to be able to, Um, respect, you know, all people as being um, essential and valuable human beings. And so that I think is really at the heart of um, what this project is. And that's how I see trash and trees really closely tied together.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Dirksen. This has been such a fantastic and insightful conversation. And we are so grateful here at the ISM for your time. For more information on the ISM Fellows Program, please visit ism.yale.edu
0: forward slash fellowships. Please join us again for more episodes of ISM Fellows in Conversation.